We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer. Today, we welcome senior healthcare consultant Colleen Deegan as she begins a new series on outpatient CDI. Updates are coming soon for root operation control guidelines. Senior healthcare consultant Christy Pollard has a live report. Nationally recognized professional auditor Terry Fletcher talks about the No Surprises Act. Senior healthcare consultant Lori Johnson has the coding news. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk. And Dr. Eric Reamer is standing by with her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who averages more than 40 MPG highway, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 478th special 60-minute live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and brought to you today by Find a Code and Good Morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Well, today, at least we're not talking about the pandemic, even though it continues to rage on like the wildfires we're experiencing out here in the West. Well, I think we're going to be talking a little bit about the pandemic, but also in the West, the virus is raging on and on and forcing a number of hospitals to execute crisis standards of care. Idaho, Alaska, and parts of Montana are operating under those conditions. You're right. And we understand that the state of Utah is expected to declare crisis standards of care within the next couple of weeks. And uh, crisis standards of care is the subject of your talkback segment today. It is indeed, and I'm going to explain what that really entails. It seems like those states with the lowest vaccination rates are the ones being hit the hardest by unvaccinated patients showing up at the emergency departments. And on Friday, CMS reported that it will now pay for COVID-19 booster shots to eligible consumers without cost sharing. And by the way... The death toll today in the United States is more than 690,000. So changing the subjects from inpatient to outpatient, specifically outpatient CDI. Yes, my good friend Colleen Deegan begins a bi-weekly series here on Talk 10 Tuesdays about outpatient CDI. Colleen will also have a Talk 10 Tuesday listener survey on outpatient CDI each time she's on the broadcast. And we want you all to participate in Colleen's listener survey. She'll use the responses to help determine where and how to focus efforts that will have the biggest impact on making improvements. We have much news to report and begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by Axia Solutions. Axia partners with health systems, hospitals, clinics, and physician practices to streamline processes and drive performance in the revenue cycle. A leader in training and education, Axia's online user-friendly platform, Axia Academy, ensures the proper training and education of internal and external coding staff by making the process efficient and a whole lot easier to manage. Axia Academy offers various ICD-10, CPT, and ENM training options and provides up-to-the-minute education on navigating day-to-day coding challenges of CM and PCS coding. The Axia Academy platform allows healthcare facilities to design, implement, manage, and maintain comprehensive training and education to support accurate coding, clean claims, and fewer denials. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about the federal debt limit. The debt ceiling, or debt limit, is a limit imposed by legislation on the amount of national debt that can be incurred by the U.S. Treasury. It limits how much money the federal government can borrow. The debt ceiling is an aggregate figure that applies to the gross debt, which includes debt and treasury bonds held by the public. How did this all start? Well, prior to 1917, when the federal government issued bonds or other debt instruments, it also had to approve legislation authorizing the government to accept responsibility for the debt. And as you can imagine, this became a cumbersome process. 
1917, Congress adopted the Second Liberty Bonds Act, which created an aggregate federal debt limit, but just for bonds. In 1939, the Public Debt Act expanded the debt limit to what we see today, a limit on the aggregate debt of the federal government. There's a real misunderstanding about what spending is covered under the federal debt limit. Some people think that refusing to raise the debt limit will prevent upcoming legislation to pass. The debt ceiling applies to federal spending that has already been approved. And I like this analogy. You decide not to increase your personal debt. You storm around the house waving your credit card bills. And at the end of the month, your credit card statement comes in the, and the balances in the mail show that your balances increased prior to your current upset when you went to dinner at a nice restaurant and bought a new cell phone. Now, there are a couple simple solutions to the debt ceiling issue, but to pass federal budgets and then refuse to pay the debt is like buying something on your credit card and then refusing to pay the bill because it's just too darn high. When we do this, creditors lower our credit rating or cancel our ability to use our cards. The impacts on our country for refusing to raise the debt limit are just as painful. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday, it's September the 28th. We're listening to the 478th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. The new IntelliSearch tool from Find-A-Code makes finding the correct codes easier than ever before, allowing you to process more claims more accurately and in less time. IntelliSearch returns the codes related to your number or keyword search and the context and details related to those codes. See the most appropriate codes, modifiers, includes, and excludes, fees, RVUs, and guidelines for your chart, resulting in a quick, clean claim. IntelliSearch processes a full block of text at once. Artificial intelligence identifies individual codes and keywords and returns them in the search results. A simple copy and paste puts the coding details you need right at your fingertips. Find a code, the most complete and easy-to-use software for coding professionals, helping you save time, increase revenue, and avoid denials. Get the new IntelliSearch tool at findacode.com talk10. That's findacode.com slash talk10. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica. And hello and happy fall to our listeners. On Friday, October 1st, fiscal year 22, ICD-10 CM and PCS codes will become effective. The new CM code set includes 159 new codes, 20 revised codes, and 18 deleted codes. The new ICD-10-PCS codes include 191 new codes with 62 revised titles and 107 deleted codes. Most of the new procedure codes are in the MedSurge section, followed by new technology. To prepare for the new fiscal year, there is a checklist of tasks to, to be completed. First, Review and educate on the new diagnosis and procedure codes. There are many webinars that review the code changes. I would recommend that you and your coding staff listen or review uh, the coding update. Two, identify and educate on new technology items. There are 38 to 40 substances or devices that are active for the fiscal year. Review the list with pharmacy, 
Central Stores, or the OR, the list of all the items that are available for fiscal year 22 and identify those items that are used by your facility. Also identify the documentation that would trigger the coder to confirm the use and assign the procedure code for the new technology item. Third, review changes to MSDRGs. You may want to work with finance to understand how the changes will impact the hospital's finances. Four, update your facility-specific coding guidelines to incorporate the fiscal year 22 changes. Maintain a copy of your previous facility coding guidelines that can be used for any retrospective audits. Five, review and update query templates for the fiscal year. Review query response statistics, and determine which templates may need to be updated to increase physician response. This is also a good time to determine baselines. Calculate your CCMCC capture rate as of the end of September 2021. I like reviewing this information on a quarterly basis to monitor the effectiveness of CDI and coding staffs. If you need assistance in this calculation, there is an AHIMA practice brief on the subject of CC and MCC capture rates. Second is determine the accuracy rate overall for the coders and for each of the coders. If you haven't completed an internal quality review, you may want to have an external audit. Coding reviews are a great method of providing feedback to the coders and determine if additional education is warranted. October is also a good time to begin the discussion on social determinants of health, or SDOH. Determine which areas of SDOH that your organization has a data need. You may need to collaborate with contracting, as some payer contracts may already include SDOH requirements. It is important that the organization realize that the coders can capture this data. Now let's move to the listener survey. What have you done to prepare for October 1st, 2021? A is I reviewed the list or listened to a webinar on the new ICD-10, CM, and PCS codes. B is reviewed and identified new technology items. C is reviewed MSDRG changes and updated query templates as needed. D is some of the above, E is all of the above, and F is does not reply. And with that, Erica, I will turn it back to you. Thanks, Lori. I, in particular, am looking forward to U09.9 post-COVID-19 condition, and everybody needs to be aware that there's an expansion of metabolic acidosis that's coming that's going to change things um, pretty significantly, so they should be on the lookout for that. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant at Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And again, Lori Johnson, thank you very much. Our Tuesday focus is about an important change in guidelines. A change is coming your way this Friday. The Talk Down Tuesday focus is sponsored by Haugen Consulting Group. Based in Denver, Colorado, Haugen offers healthcare consulting, education, and auditing services utilizing a team of industry experts. Their consulting team specializes in leadership, project management, and assessments for HIM and patient access. 
Haugen auditors and educators are experts in ICD-10 CMPCS and CPT for facility and professional fee coding. They offer education for ICD-10 CMPCS, CPT, HIM, and Revenue Cycle. Their educational services are distinguished by highly interactive delivery methods. Haugen is passionate about their client relationships and embracing a culture that is innovative, creative, and collaborative. Here now with our Tuesday focus is Christy Pollard. Thank you, Chuck. It's great to be back on Chuck 10 Tuesday. As Lori and Chuck mentioned, new ICD-10 codes are effective on Friday, and of course, that also means new guidelines. When I first saw the new PCS guidelines, one of the changes that jumped off the page was guideline B3.7. This is the one that addresses the root operation control. And I did a little historical digging to see just how many times this guideline has been revised. This answer, the fourth time, this is the fourth time since ICD-10 PCS was implemented that this guideline has been changed. And not that anyone really asked for my opinion, but I feel like CMS finally got it right. At the beginning of time, or, or at least at the beginning of ICD-10, we learned that the root operation control is used only to control post-op bleeding. At that time, that relegated this root operation to the bottom of the most likely to use pile, and I don't think we really thought much about it. The guidelines stated that control was the root operation of choice when an attempt to stop post-procedural bleeding was initially unsuccessful and did not require any of the definitive root operations of bypass, detachment, excision, extraction, reposition, replacement, or resection. One year into ICD-10 implementation, the guideline had a major revision, and it wasn't just the guideline. CMS also tweaked the definition of control to include acute bleeding, and that's where our troubles really began. While coding of post-op bleeding has its limited application and mostly flew under the radar, control of acute bleeding brought this root operation up on the most likely to use ladder. With increased reporting and scrutiny, it became apparent that there was a problem with this guideline. So what happens if bleeding is controlled using a method for a definitive root operation that is not listed in the guideline? The best example I came across was control of bleeding through embolization. Arterial embolization for hemorrhage is coded to root operation occlusion, and that root operation is not on the list of more definitive root operations, or it wasn't at the time. So CMS took note in the following year, they made a small but impactful change by adding the words such as before the list of root operations to show that that list wasn't exhaustive. The end. More like to be continued. Apparently someone still took issue with that word initially. It was me, I was someone. Okay, it wasn't just me, but it led to more discussion on what initial treatment had to be done before assigning root operation control. So CMS removed the word initially and solved that problem. It would seem that this band-aided approach to updating the root operation and associated guideline would either completely fix the issue or raise the need for another revision. And that's how we arrived at our hopefully final guideline change. For fiscal year 2022, CMS made a couple of tweaks to this guideline. First off, they changed the title. Instead of using the word definitive, they used the word specific. And why didn't they just use that word to begin with? Next, the guideline tells us two times the root operation control would not be used. The first is when control of hemostasis is integral to another procedure, 
And the second is when a more specific root operation applies. In other words, control is the root operation of last resort. And finally, and probably one of the best changes, is the inclusion of three new examples. Gone is the single example of controlling hemorrhage by removing the spleen. In its place, CMS has given us an example of when to code control, when to code a more specific root operation, and when to code nothing. At this point, I feel like they've band-aided the definition enough that it's finally fixed. But I'm interested to hear if anyone sees any issues created with this latest change. After all, we usually identify the problems with the guideline once we start to apply them. With that, back to you, Erica. So you think fourth, the fourth time's the charm. That was a great exposition on control, Christy. Thank you. That was Christy Pollard. Christy is the Director of Coding Quality and Education for the Haugen Consulting Group. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you again, Christy. And be sure to read Christy's excellent article on these new guideline changes. It's in today's ICD-10 Monitor. Preventable patient deaths are obviously a human tragedy, and the repercussions extend to hospitals and providers, too. Facilities that perform poorly on mortality measures may be subject to Medicare payment penalties, as well as decreases in consumer satisfaction scores and national hospital rankings. Preventing or reducing high mortality rates starts with reliable, accurate reviews. Has your facility fully embraced mortality reviews? Are you using the right tools to measure patient mortality? Next Tuesday, October 5th, CDI expert Cheryl Erickson leads a special webcast, Mortality Reviews, Understanding the Impact, Choosing the Right Tools. Get a fresh appreciation for the impact of relevant, effective mortality reviews while learning how to evaluate the most appropriate risk adjustment methodologies. Register now for Mortality Reviews, Understanding the Impact, Choosing the Right Tools. It's Tuesday, October 5th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. What surprises could physicians expect soon? Well, that story is next, but here now with the results of today's Talk 10 Tuesday listener survey. Once again, here's Lori Johnson. Thank you, Chuck. And the question today was, what have you done to prepare for October 1st, 2021? And the responses were for A, reviewed the list or listen, or listened to the webinar on new ICD-10-CM PCS codes. There's 41%. B is reviewed and identified new technology items at less than 1%, almost 0.5, and reviewed MSDRG changes and updated query templates, again, the less than 0.5%, some of the above at 37%, and all of the above at 14%, and does not apply is at 7%. So, we need to have people understand that the new technology will add additional monies to uh, their DRG payments. Thank you very much, uh, Lori Johnson. And, Lori, let's make sure to come back and talk about that during our town hall that's coming up. Doctors, by the way, are expected to get a reprieve as a result of the No Surprises Act. It's our special report in here now with that story. Is Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. So on, a, on July 1st of this year, the Biden administration passed their interim final rule, part one of the requirements related to the Surprise Billing Act. In an attempt to curb excessive costs, uh, patients are required to pay in relation to surprise billing. This rule is set to take effect January 1st, 2022, 
and will only affect those who are enrolled in insurance via their employers. Federal health care programs already prohibit this type of billing. There are a few uninsured provisions, but they're unclear at this time. Surprise billing occurs when the patients receive care from out-of-network providers without their knowledge. While some may believe this only occurs in emergency situations, it can also occur in non-emergency situations as well. For example, a radiologist involved in the patient's care during an emergent admission, but not necessarily an emergent service, and they are not in network. In addition to cutting down these surprise costs, the rules also focus on banning out-of-network charges without notice in advance, providing patients plain language consumer notices. This rule, this is the good news, of advance notices has been given a brief reprieve to July 1st, 2022, due to lack of data interfacing between the hospital's payers and providers. Currently, the information such as in-network list of providers or services that are covered in-network or out-of-network or cost-sharing for ancillary services is not always current or updated when the patient arrives to the emergency care. So as penalties are threatened to providers and facilities who, not com- who do not comply with the No Surprises Billing Act, the question is, will HHS and CMS and other regulatory departments be issuing regulations uh, addressing the advanced explanation of benefits prior to the effective date of January 1st, 2022. No, the departments have received feedback from the public about the challenges of developing the technical infrastructure necessary for providers and facilities to transmit to plans and issuers starting January 1st, 2022. The departments agree that compliance with this section is likely not possible by January 1st and therefore intend to undertake notice and comment rulemaking in the future to implement this provision including establishing appropriate data transfer standards. Until that time, the departments will defer enforcement of this requirement only, that plans and issuers must provide an advanced explanation of benefits. Some practices didn't even know and providers didn't even know they had to do that. MGMA is pushing for a 2023 implementation date because of the complexities of this rollout and the lack of interoperability or shared current information between payers and providers. HHS has stated it will investigate whether interim solutions are feasible for insured consumers. Also, to enforce the notice to the consumer or the patient, as outlined, may be impossible to be accurate and could force a false estimate with transparency on pricing being resisted at hospital level and likened to the reimbursement transparency at the payer level. As it currently stands, a physician would be guesstimating cost to patients, which could over or underestimate the reality of patient costs and physician reimbursements. An example of a problem that needs to be addressed prior to January 2022 implementation is the interim payment or notice of denial to providers. The regulations establish requirements regarding health plans initial payment or notice of denial to the providers, and health plans have 30 calendar days to make initial payment or issue issue a notice of denial. The 30-day window begins when the health plan determined it has received a clean claim. But there is some considerations here that could be a problem. The problem is that the regulations do not establish any requirement related to how much the plans must reimburse providers, and the department seek comment on whether they should establish a minimum payment amount. My professional opinion, of course they should, or this could be a major blow to physicians and possible consideration of not taking an emergency call in fear of no or little payment or delayed payment, and they will have to fight for, which again costs money to do. In my concern in reading the NSA, the application of balanced billing protections in instances of denied claims is also a problem. For example, an interpretation of the regulation is to permit providers to bill a patient in instances where a claim was denied because the service is not covered by the, Medicare, by the patient's health plan. 
including instances where maybe the patient has exhausted the scope of their benefits. However, the H, however, HA, AHA Hospital Association interprets the regulation to permit patient balance, balance billing in these instances and for the plan and provider to educate, adjudicate the, any disputes through existing plan appeals process and not the informal dispute resolution or IDR. So then this raises the question of whether all denials are to be adjudicated through existing processes and not the IDR process. I have sent a request for clarity on this issue as part of the regulations implementing the IDR process. Patients cannot think this is a free pass for any out-of-pocket share of cost, and there's a lot more to discuss along the way. I will just continue with more thoughts on this later in the broadcast. So, Erica, take it away. Thanks, Terry. That was nationally recognized professional coder, auditor, and consultant, Terry Fletcher. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Terry Fletcher, thank you again. Be sure to read Terry Fletcher's excellent article in today's ICD-10 Monitor. We begin a new series here on Talk 10 Tuesday. It's called Outpatient CDI, and reporting on Outpatient CDI is Colleen Deegan. And at the conclusion of her segment today, Colleen's going to conduct a Talk 10 Tuesday listener survey on the subject of Outpatient CDI. So here now with the first in her bi-weekly reporting is Senior Healthcare Consultant Colleen Deegan. Good morning, Colleen. Thank you, Chuck. Good morning, and good morning to everyone listening in today. It's really great to be back on Talk 10 Tuesday and talking about outpatient CDI, which by definition, uh, per the American Health Information Management Association, also known as AHIMA, is, and I'm going to quote from their outpatient CDI toolkit, a very broad concept and can describe any CDI effort not associated with an inpatient claim. So just start thinking about how broad that actually is. Uh, Recently in mid-September, the Association of Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists, also known as ACTIS, recognized the profession of CDI as they do annually with CDI Week. As part of CDI Week, they did conduct a survey, um, which did include several questions, six or so questions on outpatient CDI. There were close to 100 that did participate in the survey. I want to give you a breakdown quickly of the credentials they hold. 63% hold an ACTIS uh, credential CCDS, uh, that's the Certified Clinical Documentation Specialist credential. 15% were Certified Coding Specialists or CCS from AHIMA. 10% also held the CDIP, the Clinical Documentation Improvement Practitioner credential from AHIMA, and just 4% held the CCDSO, like I do, which is the Clinical Documentation Specialist, uh, Certified Clinical Documentation Specialist for Outpatient. Um, So 90% of the the respondents work in acute care hospitals or health systems, uh, including what we call academic medical centers or teaching hospitals. So the first question that was asked regarding the expansion into outpatient CDI. Uh, 20% responded they do have a standalone outpatient CDI department. Just under 4%, 3.6% of, of the respondents said their inpatient CDI team does review some outpatient records and or provide some education in outpatient settings. 22% said they had no outpatient CDI program but were planning one, and 44% said they have no plans for an outpatient CDI program. And, you know, we know hospital and healthcare systems have experienced the shift of care from inpatient to outpatient, from fee-for-service to value-based models. This has been occurring over the past 15 or so years, so we need to see these numbers grow. 
And, you know, all Medicare value-based programs are designed to change how health care is delivered and paid for. The goals of Center, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, our, our CMS friends, is it's a value-based program. They're um, improving patient care, reducing health care costs, and improving population health are the goals of these value-based programs. They really, sometimes you may hear it referred to as the triple aim. So this shift is one of the key reasons outpatient CDI programs and clinical documentation specialists have become an important and valuable resource for hospital outpatient departments and physician practices across that continuum of outpatient care. Uh, per the active survey, one of the questions that was asked was, what type of outpatient services is your organization or you focused on? And the percentages was, uh, you know, somewhat not not too surprising to me anyways, HCCs or hierarchical condition categories, which is part of risk-based payment models, was 45% of the focus. There were about 6% that had a focus on evaluation and management services. And then when you look at other areas of focus, such as denials, prevention, medical necessity, um, next level of care for the emergency department, or observation services, the accurate CPT codes, as, as five or six other examples, all of them had around a two to three percent uh, answer as far as the focus level. Uh, one of the numbers that I did want to highlight was 28% of the respondents said they actually really weren't sure of what the area of focus was. So this is the conundrum of outpatient CDI. There, are, it's just such a diverse area of focus that could be considered. So, you know, we always talk about where does an organization begin knowing there's such a diverse area there. So, to me, implementation of an outpatient CDI program, it, it has to be well planned out. It has to involve key stakeholders within the organization and, of course, align with overall organizational goals. So, the first step always is really to start with a full assessment and determine where your opportunities, where your gaps are within your organization. An assessment begins with data, including analysis of the data and validation of the data with chart reviews to really identify gaps in documentation along with coding accuracy. Once you have validated the data, then you can begin to prioritize where, where to begin the efforts within your organization. Over the coming weeks through the end of the year, I'm going to explore these diverse areas of outpatient CDI with the hopes of expanding awareness and need for documentation integrity within outpatient services. And here is my survey question regarding outpatient CDI. Are you and or your organization involved in any outpatient CDI efforts? And if yes, what is your primary focus? Is it number one, hierarchical condition categories known as HCCs? Is it documentation integrity, number two, documentation integrity for emergency department services or observation services? Number three, is your focus on evaluation and management or E&M services? Is number four the answer, medical necessity for surgical services, or is it in some other area of outpatient CDI? And with that, I will turn it back to you, Erica. Thanks, Colleen. That was my friend and colleague, Colleen Deegan. Colleen is a senior healthcare consultant for 3M. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you again, Colleen, for your first report on today's Talk to Tuesday listener survey, and we're going to share the results of the survey during our town hall segments coming up shortly. You're listening to a special 60-minute live edition of Talk to Tuesday. Up next, Dr. Erica Reamer's talk back, and then today's town hall. Next week is National Mental Health Week. 
Join Chuck and Dr. Reamer when they host another special edition of Talk Ten Tuesday, featuring prominent psychiatrist and award-winning author Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Dr. Moffick will report on mild cognitive impairment and explain why it's important to be aware of this condition. Also, author and consultant Ellen Fink-Samnick joins Dr. Moffick to report on how workplace trauma is impacting healthcare professionals. That and more next Tuesday, October 5th at 10 Eastern. Now it's time for our very popular segment here at Talk Ten Tuesday, and it's called Talk Back, and it features our very own Dr. Erica Reamer. Thank you, Chuck. Remember early on in the pandemic, flattened the curve, referred to mitigation tactics like masking, social distancing, and hand-washing? I refer you to the graphic that Emily's going to pop up here to remember what the intent was. Um, if, it, it, if, if this um, graphic was under video play, the area under the flattened curve is equal to the steeply heaped curve. It represents the same number of people contracting the virus, but they do it over a longer period of time in order not to overwhelm the healthcare system. The intent was to temporize until we had an effective vaccine which could prevent us from getting the disease altogether. It worked in the beginning. But if you've been following the news lately, you will know that that ship has sailed. People are refusing to get vaccinated or to reinstate mitigation protocols. In addition, after 18 months of being battered, the healthcare system has lost myriad nurses and other healthcare staff. Surveys show that 40% of nurses and 66% of critical care nurses are considering leaving their profession. Some leave due to stress, exhaustion, and burnout, and some are leaving because they themselves do not want to get mandatorily vaccinated. Many have converted to becoming a travel nurse, where they make considerably more than their previous staff position. Nurses justifiably feel underappreciated, undervalued, and overburdened. Across the country, our healthcare system is be, our healthcare systems are being inundated and overwhelmed by the volume of primarily unvaccinated COVID-19 patients, compounded by understaffing. Patients who have non-COVID-19-related illness and injury are receiving delayed and substandard care. Since it is widespread, transfers to another facility where care can be rendered can be difficult to arrange. One patient's provider had to contact over 40 hospitals in multiple surrounding states to find an accepting institution, but the patient died anyway. The state of, Ohio, of Idaho, which not coincidentally has the lowest rate of vaccination in the U- U.S., has activated crisis standards of care. Other states may follow suit soon. Crisis standards of care are a substantial change in usual healthcare operations due to pervasive or catastrophic disaster. Idaho's layperson explanation is, quote, uh, people who need medical care may get care that is different from what they expect. For example, patients admitted to the hospital may find that hospital beds are not available or are in repurposed rooms, such as a conference room, or that needed equipment is not available. They may have to wait for a bed to open or be moved to another hospital in or out of state that has all the resources they need. Or they might not be prioritized for the limited resources that are available. In other words, 
someone who is otherwise healthy and would recover more rapidly may get treated or have access to a ventilator before someone who is not likely to recover, close quote. This reminds me of mass casualty disaster drills when I was a resident. You would triage patients using a color coding system. Green is for walking wounded who can wait. Yellow is for stable patients who need hospital care and would normally be treated immediately, but they will be observed, reassessed, and recategorized. Red tags label folks who need immediate treatment but have a chance of survival. And black tags are for deceased patients and those whose injuries are so extensive that they are not felt to be survivable. It was a formidable responsibility to decide who would essentially be relegated to die. The AMA provides foundational guidance for developing ethically sound crisis standards of care. Triage decision must be based on criteria related to medical need, not on non-medical criteria such as a patient's social worth. Limited resources should be allocated first based on likelihood of benefit and then to promote greatest duration of benefit after recovery. If there are no distinguishing criteria of medical need, an objective and transparent mechanism such as random choice or lottery must be applied to minimize potential bias. Periodically reassess and withdraw care if unlikely to achieve the intended goal. Palliative comfort care must be provided when life-saving treatment is not possible. When resources are scarce, decisions must be made. The refusal of approximately 20% of our population to get vaccinated is causing healthcare providers to decide who gets ventilators and who doesn't, who gets a bed upstairs and who gets transferred to another state, who has a chance to live and who will die. This is a crisis of our own making. Hashtag get vaccinated. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Erica, very much. Now's the time for our Talk 10 Tuesday Town Hall, and I'd like to begin by hearing the results of today's Talk 10 Tuesday listener survey on outpatient CDI. Joining me now is Colleen Deegan. Colleen, what are the results and what are some of the takeaways? Thank you, Chuck. So the question again was, are you and or your organization involved in any outpatient CDI efforts? And if yes, what is your primary focus? Hierarchical condition categories, which was answer A, is approximately 37% of the users are, are working with HCCs. Documentation integrity for the ED and observation, about 10.5% focused on that. On the E&M services, evaluation and management services was the third choice, and about 21% focused on E&M services. Um, and then letter D was medical necessity for surgical services, which has some huge downstream impacts, about a 10, 10.5%. And then other uh, was 21%. So again, we again just really, first of all, speaks to the diversity of the work that is needed in the outpatient CDI setting. Uh, from my own professional experience, um, you know, HCCs are probably the biggest area of focus. They show that in this listener survey, they show it in the active survey, and just from my own professional experience, I do, as a consultant, spend a lot of time um, helping organizations 
assess their, their efforts around HCCs, help them with operational workflows, introducing technology and the sort. So I think from the perspective of that shift that, that I mentioned from fee-for-service to risk-based models and knowing that HCCs not only impact our, our Medicare Advantage patient, um, ACOs, Affordable Care Act, I mean, there's a lot of different organizations involved in these and they are a prospective model. Uh, so predicting next year's cost around this year's disease burden. So organizations have a lot to gain and or a lot to lose um, by focusing on HCCs or not focusing on HCCs. So that that overarching um, highest percentage does not surprise me. Uh, the idea of E&M services caught my eye, particularly 21%. And I'm thinking probably just in my own mind, we know there was a significant change right this year to E&M services in the outpatient setting. So the physician office setting, the urgent care setting, um, that shift for the first time in 25 years of documentation uh, guideline changes to where or the medical decision making um, is the criteria and or the shift from face-to-face -face time to total time. So just that transition and, and what efforts should be done around E&M services as you indicate, you know, adoption and, and both financial risk and, and other options with that. Um, and then, you know, I spend a lot of time, um, probably my second biggest area of focus is the emergency department and my, my role with 3M. Um, it's, an, it's a nice extension of inpatient into the outpatient arena, particularly related to next level of care. So even the, the clinical component of emergency departments that struggle with throughput um, and how that has a downstream revenue cycle impact. Um, if you don't get the next level of care right between observation and inpatient, if you have a throughput challenge in your emergency department and patients stay a long time in the ED, that tends to uh, result in a short stay hospital admission that's ripe for denial. So that's a big area of focus for us as well. I will kind of defer as well to any of the other um, guest presenters that I know a couple of you have had some efforts around outpatient CDI. Any thoughts from any of you on this topic? Colleen, as we're waiting for the people to respond, uh, did you see this question mm -hmm. from Edith about uh, the uh, your survey and any indication of uh, collaborative coding between the coder and the CDI person? You want to respond to that? Thanks, Edith, for the question. Um, I think there's a critical need, particularly related to HCCs, that there's a collaborative effort. And when I say outpatient CDI, it doesn't necessarily mean, uh, um, I mean, I think it's it's an area where it's certainly equally important to have that clinical nurse um, uh, knowledge base, but coders can have a really good uh, space as a CDI specialist as well. Uh, but what we refer to as like a pre-visit and a post-visit review. So again, remember, we owe our payers an accurate claim. We're required by Medicare regulations to send an accurate claim. So we, and, and anybody, I mean, I'll talk about this uh, in the coming weeks. There's been some public information around not only health payers, but health systems having some recent Department of Justice um, settlements or you know allegations around fraud and abuse related to, to HCCs and Medicare Advantage plans. But so the pre you know when you look at a longitudinal review uh, for HCCs and that year over year uh, capture, there's a really important element of pre-review prior to the visit and then the post-review, making sure that that what we call that meet that documentation was the condition monitored, evaluated, assessed, and treated. It's really critically important that that post-visit and that collaboration between the CDI team and the coding team that's submitting that claim is a really good point. So I'm glad you asked that question. 
Terry Fletcher, you had an excellent report this morning on the No Surprises Act. Uh, there were some other things that I wanted to hear from you. Tell me about it. Well, in continuing with what needs to be done on the No Surprises Act prior to implementation, hospitals are also arguing the rule won't do enough to address the inadequacy of healthcare provider networks and updated current lists, which are critical to avoiding surprise billing in the first place. I'm also concerned that disruption could occur among healthcare provider networks. So if plans and issuers are able to pay less for services under the provisions of the No Surprise Act by contracting at commercially reasonable rates with providers and facilities, then even the AHA agrees with that. They put into this to a letter to HHS this could be an issue, and IRS and Office of Personnel Management was also copied on that letter. The AHA also said the rule doesn't address every instance of out-of-network care or cases in which plans or issuers label a provider as in-network but then fail to cover medically necessary services that a provider delivered. Hospitals are also worried about meeting the rule's requirements by 2022, saying that they don't have enough time to prepare their billing departments or deploy patient communications about the law. These notices that they have to um, prior to the patient being um, treated, is it's almost counterproductive because the patient's coming in in an emergent situation, and how is the patient and the facility and the provider going to get all this done when there's a crisis at hand? So the Biden administration has to figure out how to address the ban's unresolved issues, among them the questions of how to prevent patients of course, from unknowingly signing away their protections, how insurers should calculate initial payments to out-of-network providers. That's the big one. You don't want the doctors to find a problem here, and they're going to. And how to settle disputes between providers and insurers and how to punish providers who don't cooperate with the ban. So HHS is responsible for answering most of these questions, and healthcare groups have been really trying to lobby in their efforts, especially the American College of Emergency Physicians. They're the loudest right now and their efforts to get HHS to focus on establishing a fair arbitration system for settling payment disputes and to ensure regulations prevent bad actors from playing the system to their advantage. And I could see that happening. So I'm hoping these uh, lobbying efforts, NGMA, AHA, et cetera, um, can get the January 1st, 2022 date pushed. And I, I'm not actually an, an advocate for pushing dates for anything, but there's so much uh, ambiguity and so many concerns that haven't been addressed in this clear in the language and it's not clear enough in this important regulation to implement it in three months. That's the thing. It's supposed to be implemented in three months and this could be very interesting and complicated. Thanks sir, very much. Uh, Colleen, a couple more questions on CDI, uh, outpatient CDI that is. Let's answer those questions from Jackie as well as from Leslie. Jackie said, I'd love to know what some of those other areas of focus are. Um, and Jackie, again, I think that's goes back to the conundrum of outpatient CDI. Um, I do see some focus around denials management, which I didn't really ask that question here, but it's it's more of, it sort of ties into medical necessity for surgical services, but we do see CDI teams in the outpatient setting getting involved in both denials prevention, which is sort of that front end piece, and denials management on the back end piece, and, and just being part of a collaborative team that really focuses on denials. Um, and, and again, we, we talk about right first pass payment, right? How do I get the claim paid right the first time? So that, that denials prevention on the front end and, and understanding where high volume denials occur, uh, sometimes in radiology, sometimes in lab, you know, so those high volume tests, certain procedures kyphoplasty maybe perhaps being one of them where there's a high denial with a certain surgical service, you know, following it all the way up to the front 
and understanding how is the patient getting scheduled, how is the patient getting authorized, uh, you know, where are, is there certain payers that we're struggling with, with both the authorization and the denial, how do we collaborate as a team, and CDI can really help to connect some of those dots. So off the top of my head, I definitely think of denials management or denials prevention as another big other focus. The other question, Chuck, that came in is HCC focus. Is HCC focus important for gastroenterology specialists as well? Um, and that question came to us from Leslie. And I did grab my trusty um, Actus Outpatient CDI Toolkit, a, a near and dear book to me, almost important to me anymore as the ICD-10 book. So I will tell you, Leslie, there are several categories. Um, so there are certain specialties, certainly when we think about HCCs and chronic disease burden. We think of our primary care, our family medicine doctors, um, and, and, and they do play certainly a very large role, not only the physicians, but the advanced practice providers, the physician assistants, the nurse practitioners. Um, but there are certain specialties uh, like cardiology, like endocrinology, diabetes uh, being a very big HCC um, you know, focus, um, and, and gastroenterology. So when I look at gastroenterology as a specialty, there are several, um, I'm looking one, two, three, three, four, five, six HCCs focused on gastroenterology diseases, such as um, end-stage liver disease, cirrhosis of the liver, hepatitis, but not only those liver diseases, but also sort of from the acute and the uh, chronic side, um, inflammatory bowel diseases, chronic pancreatitis, and even some acute areas of obstruction, bowel obstruction. So when you think of the gastroenterologist who is managing a lot of these in, in both the, you know, chronic setting of the clinic, but also in the hospital, definitely um, specialties such as gastroenterology, endocrinology, cardiology, neurology come to mind as equal, you know, sharing a big importance um, of HCC management. There was another question that came in. It's uh, um, uh, uh, denial management and 30-day payment period for PDGM as it relates to the code changes for October 1st. So that was uh, somebody responding to when they selected other. So Joanne, thank you for your response there. I'm going to read that again. So she wrote, other for me was denials management and 30-day payment periods in PDGM as it relates to the code changes for October 1st. Um, so any of you still listening in that want to talk to, uh, you know, quickly uh, drop in the line there for other. But I'll, I'll explore some of the other areas, you know, from my experience as well over the coming weeks. Very good. Uh, Colleen, Terry Fletcher has a question she wants to ask you. Hi, Colleen. And, and a lot of this information, which is excellent, by the way, really appreciate the clinical documentation, integrity information. My question is when it comes to telehealth, and I know that a lot of practices, even though that the telehealth visits have waned a little bit because a lot of in-person care is coming back, what is your response as far as the um, integrity of that record from an auditing perspective and the HCC focus? Because as we know, not all of the audio only is being uh, allowed mm -hmm. for that, mm -hmm. and it has to be audio and video. Um, so, what what are your what are your thoughts on that as far as any of those uh, E&M services or or encounter services? Well, first, let me say no pressure getting a question from Terry Flasher, so I'm a little nervous oh, answering, but it's a, it's a great question. Uh, telehealth, to me, um, you know, those of you listening in probably remember telehealth is not a covered service most instances due, due to the public health emergency and the temporary waivers granted by the federal government. Telehealth 
is a covered service for CMS um, as long as the public health emergency is declared, which we, uh, you know, it's, it's a 90-day grant, uh, granted waiver. Um, the government has has indicated it will likely go through the end of the year. I think the current one was from July and expo- expires sometime in October. So they've been doing this 90-day extension since March of last year. So with that, telehealth to me is a silver lining of the public health emergency because we, we learned that telehealth medicine works. Uh, patients like it, providers like it. So just there was a, a lot of concern um, over adoption, a lot to do with payment. So one of the things that I think about with telehealth, and I know there's a lot of, at the, both the congressional level and the industry level, a lot of folks working with CMS on what's the new, where does telemedicine sit in the delivery of care post the pandemic, once that public health emergency is declared over in CMS, you know, how what's the new normal? And even prior to the current administration, just the term um, by the prior CMS administrator was the genie sort of out of the bottle and there's no way to put her back in, that telemedicine is here to stay. So as it stands right now, these, again, audiovisual um, are considered face-to-face visits. Um, and for many of our patients, um, uh, you know, the, the way they're receiving care, certainly it's waned since, you know, the height of the pandemic. Pa- patients are going back into the clinic. But um, I've actually done a couple telemedicine audits as just another facet of work I do. And and um, most of them um, utilize the outpatient still office visit templates and, and indicated in there that it was a telemedicine visit. And, uh, you know, I was focused on the modifiers the place of service in the store, the instructions we have from CMS. Uh, so, you know, it's a great opportunity for them to continue. It's, it's considered a face-to-face visit in an audiovisual format, and they should treat that patient the same as they would if they were in a brick-and-mortar facility. And, and those definitely, um, you know, CMS encouraged our other, you know, the Medicare Advantage payers to recognize those services and, they, and said, you know, they do count as, as an HCC capture location. I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's really important. It has to be the audiovisual where the face is considered. So we know some patients, and it was kind of an aha moment, right, for CMS and even some of the Medicaid, but particularly for CMS, and I use my own mother as an example. Uh, she couldn't do a telemedicine visit. She she wouldn't be able to connect unless I was there helping her. So what they found was a lot of patients couldn't, right, so they opened those uh, you know, the, the office visits, and then they had to expand further down into just audio only, knowing that a lot of their senior population either didn't have access to a computer or didn't know how to use a computer, and they needed to just connect their doctors. So I think the distinction between those two is important to note, and I, I am closely watching uh, what the new normal is going to be for telemedicine as a delivery yeah, I, mean, I am too. I'm, I'm auditing as well. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned that somebody mentioned in one of your questions, the HVC focus. And I just wanted to remind mm-hmm. everybody, because I also audit for payers, that audio only, you have to be careful because they're not picking that up because yes. a lot of the HEC's hierarchy codes have to be a face-to-face active yes. um, condition. Absolutely. So just, just know yeah. that difference. Thank you very much, Terry, for bringing that up. And thank you, Colleen, for answering those questions. We've got a couple of minutes left. I want to circle back and ask Lori Johnson. Lori, quickly, give us a little summary about what, how you should prepare for the October 1st deadline, which is only Friday. I know Friday is rapidly approaching, um, and the majority of our listeners have looked at the new ICD-10 uh, CM, PCS codes. Um, identify the new technology that's used at your organization. That's money that is paid in addition to the DRG 
reimbursement. So that's really important to get done. And it involves some collaboration with other departments um, in your organization. And again, it's for inpatient only um, cases because it's paid on MSDRGs. You want to look at the MSDRG changes, write or update your um, facility-specific coding guidelines, and uh, look and see if you want to update any of your templates. Um, during the AHIMA meeting last week, there was some gr really great presentations on CDI, and they talked about the use of apps. Um, on the phone for answering queries. And I thought that was a very interesting um, thought. And um, it seemed that the physicians were lining up um, to get that app on their phone, and perhaps it could be used in outpatient CDI as well. That's a very good point, Lori Johnson. Uh, Colleen, any reaction to what you just heard Lori Johnson talk about? October 1st, you know, again, with uh, IPPS, um, you know, the code changes still affect the outpatient setting, but not obviously to, to, the, to the payments of inpatient. Thanks very much. That is going to be a wrap for our 478 live edition of Dr. Tuesday, a special 60-minute edition. That is, and I want to thank our panelists today, Terry Fletcher, Lori Johnson, Christy Pollard, Tim Powell, Colleen Deegan, who reported our lead story. And as always, thanks to our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, you can listen to all the Talk Your Tuesday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Talk Your Tuesday and Isaac 10 Monitor. Thank you very much, everybody. Have a great week. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.